The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, at verse 18. We're skipping ahead a little bit in the Gospel of Luke. We've uh, skipped over Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount because that was a series that Dr. Rogers preached near the end of his ministry. Coming to Luke 7 at verse 18 and reading through verse 28. Hear God's word. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. All Christians face doubt and discouragement. It could be doubt about the future and God's purposes for our lives. It could be doubts about our abilities or our relationships, about our health or the effectiveness of our prayers. Often there can be struggles with doubt about God himself. Is the Bible really true? Is Jesus really the one who he claims to be? Have I truly received eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Is God really with me in a time of darkness and trial? We see in our text this morning that even John the Baptist faced a time of doubt and discouragement, a dark night of the soul. Apparently, John began to have doubts about whether Jesus really was the Messiah, the Christ, who was to come. But we also see in our text that Jesus is a tender Savior and shepherd who helped the prophet through this dark time. 
We want to look at our text under three points. The first is John's question, and secondly, Jesus' answer, and thirdly, Jesus' commendation of John. So first, John's question in verses 18 to 20. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? To understand this question, we need to back up and understand what's already happened. John the Baptist is the one who baptized Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. He had declared about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But now, for a number of months, maybe even for a year, John has been locked up in prison by Herod. Not the same Herod who sought to kill Jesus when he was a baby, but one of Herod's sons. This Herod, another puppet king under Roman authorities. And this Herod had married his brother's wife, we're told elsewhere, something that John had publicly denounced, and so Herod had locked him up. John was imprisoned, apparently, in the desert fortress of Machaerus, which means the Black Fortress, east of the Dead Sea, a remote area. The dungeons of that place can still be seen in the ruins today, complete with iron hooks. Someone after the early service told me about visiting that site and how remote and desolate it seemed. But John is allowed to have visitors there, and his disciples are apparently allowed to visit him once in a while. We read in verse 18 that these disciples report to John what Jesus is doing. And Luke has recorded miracle after miracle after miracle until right before our text, there is the tremendous miracle of the raising of the son of the widow of Nain. In this funeral procession, Jesus stops the procession and raises her son from the dead. An astounding miracle. The, the news, the report spreads all around, and even John apparently possibly gets that piece of news. And as John languishes at Machaerus, he hears these reports, and he becomes increasingly perplexed. We might wonder why. Well, yes, Jesus' miraculous work fit well with his prophecies about the great work of the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would usher in. But what about John's prophecies about judgment, that the Messiah would clear his threshing floor, that he would burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire? Jesus hadn't done that. When was that going to come? It seems that King's Herod, King Herod's desert fortress had become John's doubting castle, we might say. He must have been thinking something like, when would God's Messiah destroy the enemies of God? John had prophesied that the Messiah would not only baptize with the Holy Spirit, which connotes salvation, but he would baptize with fire. That connotes judgment. John had preached about this wrath of God, which he assumed was about to fall. He had even said, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Yes, John had heard these reports, but when would Jesus get around 
to doing what John probably saw as the most important messianic function. When was Jesus going to start putting oppressive governments right? When would an evil ruler like Herod be judged? How about the liberation of the nation of Israel from the tyranny of Rome? Or maybe even he, he was even thinking, what about me, his prophet, languishing in prison? As one commentator writes, the Romans were still in firm control. Their lackeys, including Herod and Herodias, were living in comfort. The religious establishment was just as arrogant and self-righteous as ever. And John, suffering in prison, was getting no help from Jesus as far as he could see. And so John sends these two disciples to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? It might be helpful to pause at this point and to think about John's circumstances and some of the common circumstances of doubt in our lives as well. One element that comes up here is that John was suffering both physically and emotionally. Here he was locked in a dark prison month after month. He was used to living outdoors, now probably growing physically weaker, maybe sick. But also John was isolated. Yes, apparently he had these limited visits from a few of his disciples, but he was largely separated from the community of God's people And isolation makes us more liable to spiritual attack. So suffering, physical weakness, the experience of grief or some other emotional trauma, these are all common occasions for a season of doubt for the believer as well. But John's question also reveals another element of doubt, and it's this. When our expectations about God's purposes do not live up to what we had hoped for, at least not in this life. When the expectations, when our expectations about God's purposes do not live up to what we have hoped for, our expectations about our lives, our careers, our marriages, our children, our ministries, our church, our nation, the world, our expectations for justice and God's provision, all of these things, when the unfolding of God's purpose in any of these are not at all what we had hoped for, what we have prayed for, what we have longed for. Certainly, a major element in the spiritual battle against doubt. But notice a good thing about what John did. Jesus, John took his doubt to Jesus. John took his doubt to, de- to Jesus. He didn't just brood over his doubt in that prison cell. He sent his disciples to ask, what is going on? And if you are in the midst of a struggle with doubt or disappointment or despair, yes, seek out a friend or a wise counselor, but above all, take your questions to Jesus Christ. Seek him in his word. The Psalms are full of the psalmist's questions and reverent complaints, we might even say, to God. How long, O God? O God, how long will I have sorrow? O God, will you not act? Will you not hear and answer? You read those questions over and over again in the Psalms. Bring your questions, but then ask God to help you trust him 
even as you commit those questions to him, even if what you hope for is not fulfilled. In fact, as we move into Jesus' answer soon here, we'll see that Jesus never says a word to John about when God's judgment will finally come. We know it's not going to be for 2,000 plus years at least because that's how long it's been and who knows how much more time will go by. That was a subject that John could not yet have comprehended. Only after Jesus' death and resurrection do we come to understand that, that Jesus will put all things right only at his second coming. There was a distinguished sense between the first and second coming of Christ that John didn't understand. And so we see the need to go to Jesus with our doubts. Secondly, Jesus' answer in verses 21 to 23. We might put the subheading for this one, the blessedness of trusting Jesus. Verse 21, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirit, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. How did Jesus answer John's question? We might put the answer this way. In response to this question, Jesus simply continued his glorious messianic work, but he interpreted that work through the lens of Scripture. It says, in that hour. In other words, immediately, Jesus, there was this uh, spectacular overflow of miraculous mercy as what Jesus did. Can you imagine one person who was blind having their sight restored? How we would all just be celebrating and hugging him and giving thanks to God. Can you imagine many people whose sight was restored, it says? Many people healed, evil spirits cast out, just this wonderful overflow of the work of Christ's miraculous power. And of course, he preached the gospel as well. In other words, Jesus held forth to John Jesus' own person and work, the evidence that he truly is the Messiah. And then notice that verse 22, Jesus interprets that. He does all these things, and then it says, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now, you probably wouldn't know from me reading that, that that's at least the stringing together of four quotes from the prophet Isaiah that are about the Messiah. Jesus is quoting the word of God to John the Baptist, reminding him, pointing John to what he is doing and what he is saying. Look at who I am in light of the scriptures and John be reassured. It's interesting that as Jesus lists what he's doing, we might expect that the phrase, the dead being raised up, would be in the climactic position at the end, but it's not there. It's second to last. What's climactic is the phrase, the poor have the good news preached to them. In a sense, he's saying to John, I am carrying out the fundamental work of the Messiah to accomplish salvation, to preach the good news, and all my works demonstrate that. John, remember Scripture. See my ministry through the grid of Scripture. We might understand that John expected Jesus to judge the world, but in effect, 
Jesus was saying, John, I have first come to save the world. Leave that to me. Do you see what Jesus was doing to help John with his doubt? He was helping John to see who he himself was, who Jesus was. The evidence was indisputable. Miracles abounding, the good news proclaimed, and all according to the word of God. And so the lesson for us, when you're struggling with doubt and discouragement, look to the gracious and glorious person and work of Christ. Look at scripture, which records all the evidence. Don't look at yourself. To look at ourselves, we're only going to be discouraged. Look at Jesus Christ. And then Jesus concludes his answer to John with this wonderful beatitude in verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is alluding to a quote from Isaiah 8.14 where the Messiah is pictured as a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And Jesus is tenderly exhorting John, John, don't be offended at who I am and what I have come to do. Don't stumble over me because I am not meeting your expectations. We might paraphrase it this way. John, you, and we might say anyone else like you, will be blessed if you trust in me and don't look for any other savior. And we know that John took this reminder to heart and he remained steadfast to the end. And we find out a chapter later that John has been put to death. He remained faithful by God's grace. Let me ask you a searching question. Are you offended by Jesus and who he is? Are you stumbling over Jesus because he is not meeting your expectations of what a savior should be? Let me tell you, Jesus is the one. He is the one and only savior, the true Messiah. All scripture points to him. All historic evidence testifies to him. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the very hinge of history. And he calls us to look to him, to him alone and be saved. And to weak and wavering disciples like you and like me, he reminds us of the blessedness that awaits as we continue to trust him, even in dark times. Young people, some of you publicly professed faith in Christ this morning, and we support you and commend you as you take that step of faith. But we also pray for you because of this. Your faith is going to be tested. It will be tested by God for your strengthening and growth, but at the same time, it will be tested by Satan with the goal of your spiritual destruction. It will be tested by worldly temptations, by subtle, ungodly philosophies. It will be tested by seasons of suffering and by circumstances you don't understand. Please take this beatitude to heart. I hope you might remember 20 years from now, don't be offended at Jesus, your Savior and Lord. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, the Lord says. Hold fast to Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let your heart be satisfied in Jesus above all else. And this brings us to our final point. Jesus 
commendation of John in verses 24 to 28. The subheading here might be the privilege of knowing Christ. After the two disciples of John depart, Jesus turns to the crowd and he begins to speak to them about John. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? He doesn't want the crowd to misunderstand when probably they've heard something that the disciples of John are coming with questions. He wants them to understand who John is. He is not a reed shaken by the wind, tossed to and fro. He is a strong believer. He is not dressed in soft and luxurious clothing. He is a true prophet of God. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, a prophet, yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face. In other words, John was truly the forerunner of the Messiah. His whole life had been dedicated to pointing to the one to come, to proclaiming the Christ. And Jesus says, out of all of the Old Testament prophets, John was the greatest. Verse 28, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Why? Not, not necessarily because John was more godly or anything like that, but because he had the privilege of seeing Jesus with his own eyes, the privilege of testifying to Christ as he walked the earth. No other Old Testament prophet had been able to do that. But even more amazingly, we read at the end of verse 28, Jesus says this startling statement, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Amazing, isn't it? All New Testament believers are greater than John, Again, not because we're more important or anything like that, but because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have experienced the power of the finished work of Christ in history and in our lives. So because of that, we have a fuller experience of the knowledge of Christ. Yes, Old Testament believers were saved. We read that Abraham saw Christ's day and was glad. We know that Hebrews talks about Moses leaving and giving up the treasures of Egypt because of the reproach of Christ. Old Testament believers looked ahead to Christ. We look back to Christ with the fulfillment already happened. We live in the age of fulfillment, which is a great and precious privilege. And so think of the encouragement of that truth in the face of doubt. The least New Testament believer can look at the cross of Christ and look at the resurrection of Christ and be strengthened in faith in a way that Old Testament believers did not have access to. How do we face doubt and discouragement? We fight it by looking again and again at the glory and the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have that in the blazing good news of the gospel. Jesus has come. And one day, finally, all faith will finally give way to sight. There was a day in 1783 that stunned a little town in New Jersey, and especially the family of John Honeyman, a notorious Tory and sympathizer with the British. All during the Revolutionary War, Honeyman had been hated by his patriot neighbors in their town. 
There had been times that his wife had barely prevented their house from being burned down by a mob, multiple times by angry citizens. But on this day in 1783, now that the war was over, the town was amazed to see General George Washington himself and a contingent of officers ride up to Honeyman's house and General Washington himself dismount and walk up to the porch and warmly greet and thank John Honeyman for his service to his country during the war. It turned out that Honeyman wasn't a Tory after all. He was a spy for Washington and a very effective one. He had carried out the deception for seven years. How wonderful that day and that commendation must have been. His daughter, Jane, never forgot it. And years later, she would still tell the story of that day. Christian, you have the privilege of knowing and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do so in wartime. We are still the church militant. We are not yet the church triumphant. And there are times when the saints of God are persecuted and harassed and no one even knows what's happening. And our culture is seemingly to become increasingly hostile to anyone who stands for God's truth. And yet, even with all the encouragement of Scripture, we still struggle with doubt and discouragement in this day. But one day, one day very soon, our general and our commander-in-chief, our savior and friend, will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord, just as he said to John. So keep looking to Jesus and keep standing on the firm foundation of his word. Amen. Father, thank you for the example of John, a servant, part of that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about. Thank you for the encouragement that we have from those who have gone before us. And Lord, please help us to stand on your word in the day of doubt and darkness in our own lives. Lord, we do not stand by ourselves. We stand on that firm foundation that you've given us in Christ and in his word. We pray in his name. Amen.